several weeks we've been speaking about the judgment seat of Christ from three different perspectives as Paul teaches it. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he speaks about it from uh, the perspective of Christian teachers and how they build up the body of Christ, whether they're using uh, wood, hay, or straw, and that would be invaluable things like personal ambition or bad doctrine or the lack of doctrine. Com- uh, compared to uh, some teachers building up the body of Christ with pure doctrine and pure ambitions to see the body of Christ be healthy and to be thriving. And Paul makes the contrast between wood, hay, and straw being invaluable and, of course, stones, precious stones, silver and gold, which was valuable. And so Christian teachers, whether it's me and John Verdi or anybody over 2,000 years who was ever taught the body of Christ, who was encouraged the body of Christ, who was taken on the position of pastor or a teacher or anything else because it was... They believed with all their heart it was given to them by the Holy Spirit. Will still be accountable on how we built up the body of Christ. That you're, you're the body of Christ, you're not mine. I'm part of, and that we always have to make it our ambition to be pure in heart, sincere in conscience, and pure in doctrine at all times. That's how we build up the body of Christ. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we meet a different group of people that will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. And those are false apostles and false teachers. They will have to stand and give an account. Even though they were never saved, Christ will demand an account of why they came into the body of Christ and preached evil. Please understand something. The false teacher just doesn't get a pass from standing before Christ. They will have to stand before Christ and Christ will take them apart inch by inch. And they will, he will show them how you tried to destroy that which I purchased with my broken body and my shepherd. It will be a horrible experience. Through the last, through those two, if, the, if Paul never said anything about a believer himself standing before Christ, there's enough within those uh, for the implication that all believers will stand before Christ to give an account of so on and so forth. What we've been talking about is our motives and our intentions, but the text we're going to read tonight specifically speaks about every believer standing before Christ to give an account of their work in the body, our attitudes towards one another. So. Uh, that's what we're going to be speaking about tonight. Before I read the text, though, uh, it's kind of lengthy. I want to introduce you to two different things. There's two different groups Paul is addressing here. There's the weak and the strong. I'll speak and I'll explain those two different groups later on. But one's more conservative, and the other ones are more libertarians when it comes to certain matters of doctrine and, 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 uh, and, uh, and worship. And we'll speak about that as we go along. So, but I want you to keep an eye out. Paul rhetorically is addressing two groups of people, the weak and the strong. So let's go to Romans chapter 14. So follow along with understanding and try to pick up as much as you can <coughs> before I explain. Verse 14, chapter 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith... Welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may, may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on a servant of another? 
It is before his own master that he stands or falls. And he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in the honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats it in the honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in the honor of the Lord, and gives thanks to God also. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, each of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, do not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of your brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For your brother is grieved, for if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no, walk, no longer walking in love by what you eat. Do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but it's of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine, or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because he's not eating from faith. For whatever, he, whatever, for whatever does not proceed from faith, is sin, chapter 15. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproach you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the searching ministry of the living word of God. We thank you, O oh God, for taking truth and applying it to the heart of the believer. I thank you, O oh God, for ever encouraging us to come up higher, to walk the high road of interpersonal relationships, Father God, for the sole purpose of serving Christ and giving you glory, O oh God. God, help us in this endeavor 
to accept one another, to welcome one another, to build up one another, to encourage one another, Father God. And thank you for the wonderful opportunity of speaking life into another believer, Father God. God, let us see the way you see. Let us have the heart that you have, Father God. Let us enter into the spirit of this text and let it live in our hearts and live it in this church, Father God. Let us understand the full implications of what Paul is saying here in these magnificent verses, Father God. Let the church, let Sonship Ministries, let our preaching, let our loving, let everything we do be built upon this text as we seek to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, This text tonight is in no way a general or broad view. It is specific in its application to believers, and it's in a specific context. The other ones we've been speaking about is a generalization. We can, we can draw principles from the fact that all men will stand before God. But it's in this context that Paul specifically states, and he states the reasons why, all believers will stand accountable to God for how they live within the body of Christ. I will not in any way try to soften the blow. It is meant to capture our imagination, to capture our soul, and to bring us down to reality that God takes his church serious. I want to ask a question before we move forward. This is between yourself and your conscience and the Lord. But listen to how you answer these questions, okay? Did Christ die to forgive you of your sins? Does Christ love you? Did Christ die for you to love each other? depending on how you answer that third one, determines much about your understanding of the cross. Because it's all in the affirmative. Yes. We should all be as quick to say, yes, he died for me to forgive me of my sins. Yes, he loves me. And yes, he died for me to love one another. That's how quick it should roll off our tongue. But there's no way of getting around it. We are called into eternal fellowship with one another. What's really interesting and frightful a little bit is at the same time is that the criteria of our caring for one another is found in 15.7. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. More will be said about this as weeks go on. Tonight I'm listening to talking more about the first ten verses and an introduction into this chapter. But please understand something. That's the criteria. The criteria is standing before God and saying, I welcomed you. I like the NASB says it. It says, I have accepted you. And we are to accept each other and welcome each other into our heart. 
the way Christ has accepted us. So when we stand before the Lord to give a personal account of our life, I will have to give a personal account of my life determined on how Christ accepted me. That I'm there in favor before Him because He accepted me. How can I turn a deaf ear and a blind eye to anyone who's in the body of Christ? How can I? We cannot. We cannot. Verses chapter 14, 1 that says, As for one who is weak in faith, welcome him or accept him, but not to quarrel over his opinions. Don't accept him into the body of Christ so you can beat him down with our opinions. 15 says, Therefore, welcome or accept one another as Christ has accepted you to the glory of God. These two verses form a bracket in the book of Romans. Starting in chapter 14, 1, Paul moves to a new subject that ends in 15, 7. And it's interesting because if you're familiar with the book of Romans, and I hope you do get a little familiar with it over the years, is that Paul is at the height of his pastoral understanding and love for the body of Christ. This is the tension that's been behind this whole writing of the book of Romans. is the mutual edification of one another between these two groups, which I will explain in a moment. But now he... After all the theology of the first 13 chapters, he's going to drive home now how to apply this to one another. The historical context is this church in Rome consisted of two groups of people. There were converted Jews and there were converted pagans. The pagans most likely were the majority. The converted Jews were probably the minority. Most of the letter is written with this knowledge in sight. And there were many tensions that existed that the book of Romans touches upon and clearly teaches. There was the tension that existed between these groups of faith versus the law. Or works versus grace. Or the nation of ancient Israel and the nation of present Israel versus this new entity called the Christian church. What's it all about? We believe that Christ, he is the Messiah, but what do I do with... 2,000 years or 4,000 years of Jewish history. I believe Jesus is the Christ. I believe, he's the Messiah. I believe he died for me. Do I just throw away the law of Moses? Do I just throw away the Sabbath? Do I just throw away food regulations and, and, and the Jewish calendar? Do I, do I just throw it away? Well, the simple answer is, yeah. But the heart is slow to learn. But there's a lot to learn here when we see how Paul even though Paul knew and was convinced that the law was over, but yet he was so diplomatic to these people that were sensitive in their conscience. How pastoral can you get? Paul could have said, listen, it's over. Move forward. Come on. Get over it. But he doesn't. He meets them where they are. And he encourages them there. Don't we want people to snap out? Come on. Get rid of the rosary beads, man. You're saved. I will use this week and the weeks to come some contemporary understanding because it's hard for us to enter back 2,000 years ago. We're not really talking about dietary food regulations in the body of Christ. We're really not. But I will drive home the point here and we'll expand on the principles in weeks later. I will touch on some application later on. But it's this tension between the two groups that's driving the whole letter. Paul is writing the letter 
to bring the two groups together in harmony. And he does that by pointing people to Christ and his finished work to the glory of God. To Christ, his finished work to the glory of God. And that will bring the two groups together. When we come to chapter 14, we're introducing to the weak and to the strong. What's the first thing you think about the weak brother, except the weak brother? What would you think? How many think that's a moral thing? It has nothing to do with morals at all. This is not the weak brother who's continually sinning. It has nothing to do with sin. And who's the strong brother? He's the super Christian, right? I know you're looking at me. God, I got feet of clay. But I got a great Savior. I got a great Savior. Just like you do. The strong aren't the morally strong, but I pray they are. I'm sure they got their moral feelings and they got to, you know, put the debt to deed to the body by the Spirit and they got to be led by the Spirit. But the strong are those who grasp almost instantaneously that Christ finished everything. They're not worried about the Sabbath. They're not worried about Sunday. They worship God every day. They're not worried about food laws. They know that it's not about the kingdom of God. It's not about food. That God's concerned if I'm eating pork. It's about righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's the strong. They just, they got the gift of faith. They just embraced Christ. They saw the magnificence of Christ and his work. And that the Old Testament was just preparatory. All those food regulations and all those calendars and all those sacrifices, they were just pointing to something much greater to come. And guess what? He's come. Someone greater than Solomon, someone greater than Temple, someone greater than Aaron, someone greater than Moses has come. Jesus Christ, he's greater than the temple. He is the temple of God. What happened though? The strong started to look down on the weak. The strong who understood the full implications of what Christ did had this sense of superiority. Come on, get with it. Get with the religious program. Don't stop being so uptight. Have a glass of wine. Eat the pork, it's good. Taste the barbecue. Enjoy it. Don't worry about Sunday. You worship God any day. And we got this battle of wits going on. We got this battle of convictions going on between the libertarians and the ultra conservatives. Because the old conservatives didn't know what to do with their old scruples. They're like, but for 2,000 years, this is what our nation did. Everything the Jew did from the cradle to the grave was, was regulated by the law of Moses. Think about that. Everything. You were circumcised on the eighth day. Your whole life was regulated by the law of Moses. If you were Jew in Turkey, whether you were Jew in Antioch, whether you were Jew in Jerusalem, everybody did the same thing all the time, all year long. Think about it. They worshipped on the same day of the week. They worshipped on a new moon. They worshipped at all the festivals. They were all the time. They didn't do it in one month, and so another group did it in another month. They didn't worship on Saturday, another group. They did it all the time. Their whole life was regulated. And now they're saved, the Messiah has come, and they're like, but I just can't break away. I can't seem just to give up the past. 
the strong libertarians that understood these things were gone, would look with disdain down upon the people. The words used contempt, it means scorn. It means to reject someone. They were actually rejected. This was no mere mental protest. This was verbal. It was emotional. They made it known that we're better than you. And we're not going to accept you, but we reject you. This is, this, you, can, you can cut the tension with a knife. So we have these two groups. And Paul's like a referee. And he's trying to bring harmony out of these two groups with different convictions. You know what's nice? Neither group was Neither group was wrong. Actually, the strong were right when it comes to the convictions. The strong knew it. But Paul's saying, you're not wrong. If you've got strong convictions, live by them. But what's wrong for you is not wrong for everybody else. Someone gives up wine, I won't drink wine at all. So that means anybody who is, need I say any more? we got to be careful of that. I use a contemporary thing to give a, an Old Testament illustration of what, how, how we can identify with this. Someone stops smoking, that means everybody has to. Listen, if you're smoking, listen, it's not sin. It's kind of foolish, though. Give it up. For your health, give it up. Give it up for your loved ones. Give it up. But the point being over here, the conservative group that still wanted to live under food regulations, still wanted to live under the calendar, still wanted to worship on the, uh, 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 on the Sabbath, still wanted to count one day as more important to the other. What they did, they started passing judgment on the libertarians. They were taking the place of God. That's why he brings in verse 10 about the judgment seat. That's God's job. Only Christ is uniquely qualified to judge the human heart. Not me or you. Not these, not the, not the ultra-conservatives. They look down on these ones who are still eating and still drinking because you know what that brings you into contact with? The pagan world. And surely, that's no place for a true believer. In the pagan world, you, you went to the pub? You, you went here? You're saved? So both groups had good convictions, but they were beating each other to death with them. That's the problem. Just because something is wrong to my conscience, I don't drink. I'm a drunk. God gave me, saved me from that almost 30 years ago. That's my conviction. I don't do that. You're probably better off never. But if you had a glass of wine, I'm not going to sit there and judge you. That is the battle that's going on here. Just because it's wrong for me and my conscience doesn't mean it's wrong for you and your life. Each man, Paul says, is to do what's right according to his own conscience in this context. We'll talk about that because what is Paul saying? Oh, you can, oh I love this Christian religion. You do whatever you want. 
You get conscience says it's okay, knock yourself out. Go right ahead. This is, I love this new religion. You do whatever you want. It's a, you go to some churches, that's what they turn it into be. Because they never tell you the truth. If you don't hear the truth, you'll turn it into something like that. So this is what we got going on. This is why Paul is writing. The strong in Rome who understood and embraced the freedom in Christ, turning it into a license to sin. Listen to what Paul says in Galatians chapter 5. He addresses this issue in another book. Listen to the way he calls it. For you were called to freedom, brothers. That's the freedom I just spoke about in Christ. From all dietary food laws, all uh, regulations of the calendar, religious calendar. He goes, you, you, you're called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't be thinking you're better than everybody else now because you're walking in freedom. There's still a lot of Jewish believers that just haven't entered into this great freedom, but they're saved, and, the, and Christ died for them, and Christ accepted them, so you've got to accept them. Be careful. Your best just to love to, uh, to uh, love and serve one another. That's what he's saying here. Don't use this freedom as an opportunity for pride. There's always a temptation when you grasp certain theological truths and, and, and you embrace it and you see the freedom and the joy uh, of God to look down upon people that are still a little more have a religiosity to them, who still worship God in a manner that seems to us archaic or even old-fashioned. And we sort of want to say, come on, get saved. Instead of loving the weaker brother with the extremely sensitive conscience, it turned into an opportunity for the flesh, as is the unfortunate tendency of people who think they've arrived in life. Isn't that a tendency of people who have arrived in life? Just to stare down their nose at other people. All this comes to a fast head in verse 3 of our text tonight. Could you put verse 3 up there again? Romans 14.3 Let not one who eats despise... Both groups are represented here, okay? Listen. Let not the one who eats... That's the free people. That's the libertarians. Despise, hate, reject, and scorn the one who abstains. Then he goes to the other group. And let the one who abstains, who will not dare go near poor, who will not ever drink wine, who will worship only on one day and call it holy, don't let him pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. I could add easily before the foundations of the world. God has accepted that person. This verse sets the whole stage for the context of chapter 14 and 15 verse 7. The strong despise, they hold in contempt, they disdain, they scorn, with the result of rejecting them. Uh, It's cutting like a knife. They're ruining the body of Christ by their inner attitudes. They turn their noses up at them, they look down at them. This inner pride is an enemy of true unity amongst believers and the worship of God. Listen to chapter 15, verse 6. That together you may 
the weak and the strong, that together you may, the may is the weak and the strong, the Jew and the Gentile, together you may, with one voice, glorify God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the goal. That's true worship. Can we call our worship pure when I got hatred and rejection in my heart towards another believer? Can I actually sit there and say, God, I love you, and you're worthy, and you're great, and not hear the rebuke of Jesus when he said, if you come to the altar and bring your gift, but your brother has something against you, leave the gift here. God will accept it, but leave the gift. Go get your heart right with your brother. And then come bring your worship to God. True worship is not just what we believe and know about God. In effect, is our attitudes with each other. It's part of our worship to God. That's what Paul was teaching. I told you it was going to hurt last week. I told you. Saddle up. God's coming out after us. But in the same breath, verse, in verse 3, Paul calls attention to the captain mistake of judging on behalf of the weaker, of the more conservative brother or sister. See, they pass judgment on the libertarians as being lost and worldly. You're dishonoring God. You're, you're living like a pagan. You're hanging out with pagans. You're sort of like Jesus who ate and drank with who? The sinners. Their freedom to eat whatever pleased them and to drink wine brought them into contact with the unbelieving world of pagans. Surely they were saying in their heart, God condemns such behavior. So they thought in their minds, and they were so equipped with the power of observation, they passed judgment on, on behalf of God. Well, God's not here, we'll pass judgment on you. And you know something? Your hearts are not right with God. Obviously. Because of the way you're eating, the way you're worshiping, the way you're dressing, the way you drink wine. And they pass judgments on their hearts. We got one group looking down at one group, the other group looking up and saying, you're not right with God yet. Neither group knows if either group is saved. Paul reminds this group of, the high, of highly conservatives that God has already accepted them. And that before their master they rise and fall. Not before you, but before their master. And he reassures them they will stand because Christ will make them stand. No matter what you think of them, no matter your grand opinions of judging them, criticizing them, makes no difference. They'll stand. On the judgment day, they'll stand because Christ, their master, will make them stand. Just because something is wrong for you does not make it wrong for everybody else. Paul now switches over to sacred days. Verses 5 and 6 and 7. It gives us insight into these matters. Whether it's food or no food. Whether it's days or no days. What matters most is why anybody does anything for God. Not what they do, but why they do it. If one abstains, it should be for the glory of God. And done with thanksgiving in their hearts for abstaining. If one eats, likewise, you should... It should be done with an eye on what Christ has freed them from. I can eat because Christ has saved me from the regulations of Moses. If one worships with a high regard to a specific day, 
Then let them do it with all their hearts, with thanksgiving to God, as they're worshiping the true living God. If another regards all days as a day to worship, then let them worship God every day and all day to the glory of God. So what do you do? Just love the Lord. That's why he came in verse 9. For this, to this end Christ died and lived again. That he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. He's speaking about the resurrection. For this end that Christ died and was resurrected again. That he might be Lord of both the dead and the living saints. Since Christ is the universal Lord of all. We should consider what, he is, what we do to bring him glory and recognition. And to serve him in an attitude of humility all the time, not ourselves. Especially all the petty differences. He's saying, listen, Christ is raised from the dead. He's the Lord of the universe and, and you're majoring in the... What's going on here? Have you missed it? Do you understand that Christ has been raised from the dead? And you're down here with your noses in the dirt worried about what you're eating? We serve a resurrected universal Lord. That every knee is going to bow. And every tongue is going to confess. And you're caught up in nonsense. You're splashing in the shallows. Take off the diapers and grow up. Is what Paul is saying. Which leads us to Romans 14.10. Why do you pass judgment? On your brother, that's one group. That's the conservatives passing judgment on your brother, who they didn't think were brothers, because they were still living like pagans in their estimation. Then he says to the other group, Why do you despise your brother as you are better because you've got some freedom in Christ? Don't you understand? Have, have you not grasped that we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of God? And he just drives home this reality. And reminds both of them of their common fate of standing before Christ, the only true judge of men's hearts. As I spent time over the weeks just pondering and reading and studying and praying and meditating on this verse of scripture, and how Paul uses this judgment seat of Christ. It's like Paul didn't write Romans to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. He didn't write 1 Corinthians chapter 3 to talk about the judgment seat of Christ. He didn't write 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 10 to speak about the judgment seat of Christ. He's, he's dealing with situations. And in the middle of the situation he grabs onto this higher reality. And he uses to sober people up. This is not a systematic theological Trustees on, on, on the judgment seat of Christ. He's a pastor. And he wants people to live in harmony. And he sees the tension. And he sees the indifference. And he's saying, please understand something. What? How can I explain it? Oh, we're all going to stand before Christ. Don't judge one another. This is a pastor's heart. It's a way of sobering them up to reality. And they get on to the business of what he says in Romans 12 of being living sacrifices for God and not self-appointed judges. Leave it to Christ. If there's any kind of nuance in our heart that needs to be addressed, let God do that. He does it not just thoroughly, but much more graciously and mercifully than we ever could judge one another. 
Understand, I'd rather stand before God than stand before some Christians. I'll get mercy from God. You know, if some Christians ever understood what went on in my heart, I'd be like, you know, God, you know, God's more gracious to me than people are. It's a good thing to stand before God. Could you imagine standing before the elders of Israel when they crucified Christ? Could you imagine being the woman who was caught in adultery, thrown before the elders, naked and caught in sin? She was better off being caught and thrown before the loving feet of Jesus Christ. Where all she heard was, daughter, your sins are forgiven. Go sin no more. Judge not least you be judged. I don't want you to miss, I'm going to spend some time in this text, but I don't want you to miss how Paul just grasps this, this end time reality of standing before God to say, come to, your, come to your senses. Rise up and see the big picture. Don't get tossed to and fro by these emotional petty nonsenses. If you're really concerned about someone getting away with something, don't worry. They'll stand before God one day and he'll do a wonderful job of scrutinizing their heart. And he'll do a wonderful job of scrutinizing all our own hearts. Paul's basically saying this. Listen, we have enough energy and time to spend on our own hearts. Let's not do it to others in these matters. Listen to William Barclay. He says this on this verse. Naked we come into this world and naked we leave it. He goes on to say, quote, we stand before God in the awful, the awfulness, we stand before God in the awful loneliness of our own souls. To him we can take nothing but the character which in this life has been building up. That's it. I can't stand before God and say, you know something? I look a little better than those two guys, right? All I can do is stand there before God and say, God, this is all there is. This is what your grace did to my life. This is the character, the fruit of patience the fruit of self-control, the fruit of genuine love for my brother and sister in Christ. It's the fruit of goodness and kindness. As I constantly reflected on your mercy in my life, it had this great ability to transform this sinner into a saint. I had prejudice. I had hatred. I had criticism. I had judgments of anything and everybody all the time. But as I reflected on what you've done for me, it changed me from the inside that's all I have to bring before God. That's why Paul can say in verse 19, So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food or personal opinions destroy the work of God in someone else's life. When anyone stops being a living sacrifice, understand something. And being a constructive part of building the church of God. Usually and sadly we become self-appointed judges of, under, of others. And unconsciously tear down the work of God. 
The low road of contempt and judgment of others is so natural to our human soul. It is just, listen, none of us get away with it. It's just, it's part of our sinful hearts. It's just, it's a sad reality in our sinful heart. But within this chapter and a half, there's a clear diagnosis of this hidden sickness. Clear diagnosis. But within this text is a clear antidote, divine antidote to such behavior. I ask you this as we close. Are you concerned about how we would look before Christ if we had to stand before him today? I hope we're all concerned to some degree. Always remember what I said. Standing before Christ will get me to sober up, but that won't change me. I'll ask you today, do you want a change in your heart? Don't look to the judgment seat, look to the cross. As Christ has accepted you, what's that an allusion to? The cross. Where did he accept you? Where did he make peace with God for you? Where did he save you? He saved you at the cross. If we're going to accept each other as Christ has accepted me, I've got to go understand what Christ did for me at the cross. Because if my behavior still needs to change, it's not because I didn't grasp the magnitude of reality of standing before Christ. It's because I still not have not properly understood or applied the full implications of what Christ has done for me at the cross. Father, we thank you for challenging us. I thank you for stirring the pot in our hearts, Father God. And I think, Father God, as we go through this text and as we spend time in this text and as all of us just personally spend time thinking about this and reading this chapter, and to think that we're going to take communion now, God. What an appropriate, God-divine appointment that there is no coincidences. And as we take, as the ushers get ready to prepare for taking the body and the blood, Father God, it's just a great time to be grateful to you. That we're accepted by you, God, because of Christ's broken body and his shed blood, Period. We bring nothing. We bring nothing, God, but our sin. That's all we have. We have sin. We're manufacturers of sin and criticism and judgments, God. We're fools, Lord. We're fools and intoxicated with ourselves. Our great opinions. Our great understanding of other people's lives. God, we've played the fool so many times. When will we stop being overly concerned with the speck in our brother's eye, God. Forgive us. Just forgive us, God. As we take the body and the blood, Father God, do a fresh new work. God, I'm asking you as a man, I'm asking you as a Christian, I'm asking you as a pastor, a servant in your body, I pray, God, that you do a brand new, fresh work in our hearts, Father God, that we can truly welcome everybody you have already welcomed. Help us, stir us up, strengthen us, God. 
as we prepare our hearts to take together in the unity of the spirit, the bond of peace, the broken body, and the shed blood of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Once you are pleased with your eyes closed, just let God minister to all of us. I don't know what he spoke to your heart today. Maybe something specific, maybe something general. Whatever it might be, let God just do something fresh within all of us in these matters.